On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the February 2017 podcast. Unfortunately, we weren't able to coordinate a podcast for the selected article in January, so Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago. I'm the editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation. So my first guest is Dr. Chanu Ree from the Harvard Medical School Department of Population Medicine and the Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute. He's also a critical care and infectious disease doc at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. He's here to discuss his article, Estimated 10-Year Trends in Septic Shock Incidents and Mortality in United States Academic Medical Centers Using Clinical Data. Chanu, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Our other guest is Dr. Robert Heisey, Professor of Internal Medicine and Director of Critical Care Medicine from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And he's going to discuss his accompanying editorial, Septic Shock Surveillance, Critically Important but Not Straightforward. Bob, thanks for joining us as well. Well, thank you for having me. So, so um, Shannon, set the stage for us, you know, so our, you know, our, our people are listening in. And, you know, what was the purpose? What, what made you guys think to do this? There's clearly a lot of work involved if one's going through 10 years of data. So you're not doing it on a whim. What was the purpose? What were you trying to do? Sure, yeah, and it, and it was a lot of work. Thank you for acknowledging that. So uh, <laughs> I think, I think the, back, the background of the study is that uh, sepsis is clearly a major problem, um, and really, I think rightfully getting a lot of attention nowadays between new definitions and the new uh, national quality measures by CMS. And so uh, the background on this beyond that is that it's been commonly reported that the incidence of sepsis and septic shock has uh, risen dramatically over the past decade and, and beyond. And our interest in this was to really try to figure out what is actually happening with trends in sepsis, and in this study, particularly septic shock. And I guess our underlying hypothesis was that perhaps the uh, rise in incidents uh, reported using primarily billing data may be overestimated as a result of increasing recognition and awareness of sepsis and septic shock. And that was the background for the study, and our, our idea for this was to try to find a better way, perhaps, or at least a more reliable way to track trends in septic shock incidents and outcomes using clinic, clinical data as opposed to billing codes. Okay, so let's expand then. Tell us, um, you know, what... What were your clinical, you know, criteria? I mean, you know, the, as you as you pointed out, and 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 Rob, try, uh, Robert, chime in because the, you know, historically, you know, like you said, it's been it's been billing data. That's where a lot of our estimates and our numbers have come from. And and as we all know, you know, if the sepsis rates are indeed rising, that's what's going to be driving, uh, you know, it's going to be flagged as a as a problem. It's going to get flagged with guidelines and criteria and create, uh, you know, sort of stimulus for medical centers to do. You know, change how they practice. You know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's it's one of those classic problems of let's make sure we're all talking about the same thing here before we throw resources at it. Right. Well, this is a fascinating uh, paper for at uh, two levels. Right. One is just the content as it pertains to sepsis, as was pointed out. I mean, the, the, you know, is is this an issue of greater reporting? And I think the, the specificity of of both the administrative uh, approach and the clinical approach was was solid so that was almost a surprise i'm sure to the investigators uh, they didn't find uh overcoding at least uh, people really had what they said they have the other issue of course that's fascinating here is the use of the electronic medical record and and this approach now uh, the same group has done stuff with uh, other clinical critical care scenarios 
And, and really, this is the wave of the future. And, you know, taking nothing away from the morass of data these guys had to work with, they're really only, and they would be the first to admit, this is, they're scratching the surface uh, in this area. They're out in front in something that is going to have to happen, and, but it just has to happen better and better. And so they're, they're you know, leaders, if you will, in, in trying to uh, get rid of this administrative data uh, reliance, uh, which is, uh, can be misguided, to try to dig into the, you know, the, we call it big data, into the, into the medical record itself to really uh, more finely grasp the conditions and evaluate the conditions that you want, that you want and not relying on, on coding and billing to, to try to uh, acuity adjust and level the playing field and other issues such as that. So, uh, you know, this really interesting work by these guys uh, on, on both levels. Well, well, thanks, Bob. I really, really appreciate uh, that uh, that uh, acknowledgement of uh, of this study and, and some of the other work we've done, and maybe to expand a little bit more on exactly you know what we did and kind of the clinical markers we we looked at um, for this please, study. Please. So, um, <clears throat> so you know, we kind of started just kind of thinking just clinically, what what are the markers uh, of septic shock, um, and we believe that it's uh, uh, you know at the heart of it, not particularly complicated. I think. Uh, septic shock involves uh, obviously infection and hypotension, and particularly hypotension that's dependent on vasopressors. And essentially, we looked at clinical markers in the form of blood culture orders, uh, administration of, of antibiotics, and again, these vasopressors, things that we could um, reliably identify in uh, electronic health record data sets. Uh, things that should be not uh, particularly variable according to clinician or different hospitals, things that are really cornerstones behind recognizing and diagnosing septic shock. And with those components, we created a uh, what we felt was a clinically intuitive uh, algorithm, or we called it a surveillance definition, where, again, the algorithm would first look for vasopressor administrations, and then uh, in a plus or minus two-day window surrounding the start of vasopressors, we look for blood culture orders and then the initiation of IV antibiotics. And we didn't just want one day of antibiotics, but we wanted, we wanted to identify the patients that received at least four days of antibiotics with the rationale that we know that tons of patients get started on antibiotics for one, two, maybe even three days. But once you kind of cross into that four-day or longer period, usually clinicians are uh, treating what they truly believe to be to be an infection. And that was essentially the algorithm. Um, we debated a lot about whether we wanted to look at uh, just any uh, administration of vasopressor on a given day or uh, two days of vasopressors. And I'll just speak to that briefly. Uh, because when tracking trends over time, we were concerned that uh, perhaps uh, the threshold to start vasopressors may uh, be changing over time as well. And so we focused on primarily on the patients that received at least two consecutive calendar, calendar days of vasopressors in order to try to really hone in on the population that truly had persistent hypotension. And when you start to talk, you know, when we get to the part of of what your group found and, and you explain on their data, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but but you did explore uh, the data from using a, a less robust two-day cutoff, but wondering what would it have been like if we only used a one-day cutoff? Yes, yes. We so we looked we looked at it both we looked at it both ways, and uh, so first we had these definitions. We we. Um, 
programmed them, obviously. We implemented them. And then in uh, three separate hospitals, we uh, manually reviewed a random subset of, of charts to um, compare how, how to see how they compare to uh, expert clinicians reviewing the entire chart, uh, histories, labs, et cetera, and making a classification of, of septic shock or not. And um, <clears throat> what we found was that the uh, definition using the two consecutive vasopressor days was, uh, it's a trade-off, that the specificity of the positive predictive value was higher. In particular, we found it to be about 83% for positive predictive value. And the sensitivity was a little bit lower compared to the one vasopressor day. Uh, so the sensitivity we found was about 75%. Uh, in comparison, uh, when you use one vasopressor day, as you would expect, the sensitivity goes up and the specificity and positive predictive value goes down a little bit. So we knew there was going to be a little bit of a trade-off there. Rob, what do you think of that? I mean, or Bob, excuse me, what do you, what do well, you think of that? Well, you know, I think it's methodologically sound. You know, what I can't get my head around with this paper is we included the editorial, and I don't know if you had a chance to see that, was the, the lack of overlap between the groups. Because you say, okay, I get it. Right. If, you, if, you, if you say only one vasopressor day, uh, then, uh, you know, again, uh, the positive predictive value went down, but, but, but the lack of overlap, you say, which, uh, were those the same patients that were not captured in the clinical group that were captured in the ICD-9 coding, and those were sort of being upcoded when mortalities are similar? I'm, I'm thinking myself into a box here, and I realize that, but, you know, when, when you have a, uh, a third or rough uh, or so of the patients, not a, uh, not, uh, a third of the patients were uniquely coded by one or the other methodology, and the amount of overlap was was less significant than what you might expect, and that and that's what I I can't quite grasp here. So part of that relates to this issue of how do you define something, and the other point, of course, just being that the whole notion of trying to make these trade-offs as you look for clinical identifiers is to avoid the 1,000 patients reviewing charts by hand. In other words, <laughs> you're trying to automate that right. resemble reality because getting people in white coats to pull charts. Is not going to work, you know, on any grand scale. So the, the reason this methodology is second that <laughs> is to come up with something as a surrogate for that labor-intensive, ins, you know, insanity. Uh, but then again, you know, the, the data show what the data show. That's always true. And I guess I would like uh, his opinion regarding this overlap issue. And you know, who are those guys? Where where, where is that? Where is that lack of overlap coming from? Uh, and what what we what you think that? I mean, again, the data the data the data. No argument there. But, but how does that reflect on the methodology? Uh, and I, I'm wondering if you've sort of kicked the tires on that one a little bit. Yeah, so Shannon, explain on that. Sure. I mean, what I was talking about, obviously, we went through, you know, we went through 6.5 million hospitalizations um, over that time period. Um, right. Let's talk about what was flagged by your clinical criteria versus ICD-9 codes. You know, and, and one would hope that if your clinical criteria marked it as sepsis, that's how it was being billed. Um, and yet, when you look at the overlap, it's it's not as concordant. Um, right. So well, yeah. Think, so then. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I think no. I think that's a great point that 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 Bob brought up in his in his editorial i mean i think i think it speaks to the fact that neither method is is perfect right uh you know we didn't go back and re-review the charts for example that were flagged by one but not the other um but i think um you know for in terms of the codes we we know and we did demonstrate that that um uh, you know the sensitivity is uh relatively low so we know that a lot of patients uh with septic shock are not being coded as septic shock and similarly, we, can, we know that the surveillance definition is also not perfect, even though the positive predictive value was pretty good. You can certainly imagine a lot of cases where patients are on antibiotics, getting blood cultures, 
um, and getting vasopressors for and and who end up despite despite getting several days of antibiotics, uh, you know, end up having a really non-infectious etiology for for their clinical syndrome. And so uh, it's true. I was I was a little bit um, surprised at. Um, really the presence of only moderate overlap, but I think uh, some of those factors can really really explain that. And again, I think this notion of um, keep in mind that this, this overlap that we looked at was really amongst the entire time period, and I, thought, I think one of the, the, the findings, interesting findings in, in, our, in our study was that when looking at patients who met the clinical surve- surveillance definition criteria, if you look each year, you could see that the percentage of those patients who were getting were receiving uh, ICD-9 codes or septic shock uh, rose steadily um, every single year. And that really, I think that really suggests or speaks to this notion that uh, there is increasing recognition or increasing um, awareness of septic shock. And certainly uh, patients kind of meeting that criteria were getting increasingly coded for septic shock over time. Yeah, I mean, clearly there's no secular trend in that, and I, I, there's no, no arguing that. Uh, you know, was sort of my back of the envelope calculation of 74% sensitivity against uh, uh, the thousands of patients. Let's see, 37,669 identified only by ICD-9. I just, it, you know, that's where I, I kind of had that disconnect. But well, well said. I mean, the, clearly, secular trends are there o- over time for coding. I mean, we, we live in, we live in the real world, and we and I've got my coders, uh, frankly, when I'm in the ICU, sending me little reminders uh, all the time. Uh, Did he have septic shock? Oh, was that something shock? Right. You know, and if so, please specify because uh, you know these right. people, their salaries are more than they, they recoup more than their salaries uh, per year in doing in sending me these little emails and others. <laughs> right, absolutely. Hey, um, so question then: the, the, when you looked at when you did obviously your chart review, your validation, if you will, Chenu, um ones that you had that used the clinical criteria and, and flagged the sepsis, and, and as you just sort of anecdotally said, you know, we, we we're all aware of the scenario where someone did get many antibiotics and blood cultures and vasoactive agents, but but wasn't septic. Did you find a commonality though? In other words, is another piece of information that we could pull from your study um, a commonality where this is uh, sepsis? is being thought, um, thought of thought of very incorrectly, and maybe it's a flag, you know, for antibiotic stewardship in certain scenarios. Or, in other words, was there any form of a signal that you could have teased out here where you know your your criterion uh, flagged this person, but it was actually incorrect? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and uh, you know, I think I think the uh, the imperfectness, if you will, of the clinical surveillance definition, um, I think speaks to a lot of the challenges that we face, um, all of us face as clinicians, and particularly in the ICU in terms of, you know, we oftentimes, I mean, every time I'm in the ICU, I, I feel like I get some patient who's crashing, who's hypotensive in shock, and, right. um, we, you know, I just don't really know what's going on. It may be cardiogenic, they may be bleeding, um, they may be septic, or some combination of all of those. And uh, the fact of the matter is, of course, we're going to draw blood cultures. That's a no-brainer. Of course, we're going to get them vasopressors because no matter what the under, underlying ideology is. And most of the time, they're going to get antibiotics. And, yes, if, if it clearly becomes something that's non-infectious, yes, I will stop antibiotics in two, maybe, maybe three days. But you can imagine a lot of times where, you know, I'm not really sure. Uh, I think it's cardiogenic, but maybe they had a pneumonia on top of that. 
uh, I'm not really sure, and uh, it probably was cardiogenic, but I'm going to be safe and um, continue a course of finish a course of antibiotics. And I, I, you know, I think that's part of what we were seeing there. With okay. again, what we 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 intensively went back and and reviewed the charts. So this is kind of a, you know, quarterback and going back looking at the charts and really trying to decide that in retrospect was was there evidence of infection. And a lot of times, not a lot of times, but it, you know, in a, in, a, in a in a percentage of these patients, despite all those criteria, we felt that um, they weren't actually septic. So that's what we were looking for. We were looking for whether there was reasonable evidence of infection, and um, even though the clinical actions taken by, by, the, t- by the clinician in, in, again, ordering the antibiotics and, and such might have been reasonable at the time, in retrospect, they probably didn't have infection. So I think that accounts for, for some of it. And the one other thing I'll say about that in terms of um, these quote-unquote false positives, I think another scenario you can imagine is patients who um, maybe uh, who, who, who are intubated, uh, maybe, maybe they have an infection that's, that's uh, serious, maybe not that serious, but they're on pressures in the setting of uh, sedation like propofol, and uh, while they're intubated, they need a little bit of pressure. So our, our definition, we weren't able to have the granularity to try to set up you know, a certain cutoff in terms of how much uh, levofed requirement, for example, the patient needed. So even if they needed a little bit of levofed to support them on on propofol, uh, we weren't able to d- distinguish that. Again, we knew that was going to be, um, you know, a limitation of our study, uh, but uh, we, you know, we 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 still found that the definition, despite those, imp- in, you know, um, issues and the challenges, I'd say was not perfect, but was was pretty good in in picking up septic shock cases. No, and I agree with that. I mean, it, it, what, these are you have to make trade-offs when you're going to do uh, an automated chart uh, scavenging approach like this. And uh, I think this is the best of, of the situation. I mean, the, the whole issue one presser, two presser, well, one presser day versus two presser day is the one you'd love to have seen uh, better uh, positive predictive value one day, but just it just wasn't there. Um, right. And that maybe that does speak to some of the sedation, propofol issues, and, and the like. And and that's where you capture it over two days, where you might might. Uh, lose it at one. I guess I'd like to get your comments. You know, we, in our editorial, we, we talked about the uh, performance measures and how uh, you, you know this is we're on the cusp, if you will, of uh, requirements for, with regard to sepsis and how you might view your uh, information in the context of uh, the sepsis performance measure. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. It's one of, one of my certainly one of my favorite topics, I guess, to at least think about. Um, and it's it's a really challenging one, I think. Um, as we all know, uh, as we said, there's you know we're in a, we're in an era now of um, intense interest in this, uh, you know, measuring sepsis and measuring the quality of care. And uh, currently, uh, you know, we're we're still relying on uh, uh, billing codes, of course. Uh, currently now, ICD-10 instead of ICD-9. And then a sort of a manual chart review by abstractors at each hospital to really try to tease out whether certain process measures were were, were met. And I think certainly, um, you know, there's arguments to be made and you know pros and cons about that approach. I think overall, probably most of us would agree that the um, general concept of trying to improve and, and hone in on sepsis care, better sepsis care, is a good thing. Uh, and then the question is, what what is the best way to to do that? And I think. Uh, you know, I think some of what this paper highlights and, and against maybe some of the other work our, our group has done is just really trying to point out that, you know, we need to be smart about this when, when going about trying to measure quality in, in, in a syndrome that's as um, heterogeneous and potentially subjective in terms of um, uh, quantifying it as sepsis and septic shock. And uh, we are positing that for, for things like quality and surveillance that 
um, having a, a, a measure or a surveillance definition that's uh, objective uh, and reliable uh, is really important, even if that's not perfect, even if it's not 100% sensitive or 100% specific. Uh, the fact that um, it's not, uh, we want something that can't be uh, certainly gamed very easily, potentially between hospitals or won't um, be as subject to these changes over time that might result from external influences like um, you know, these billing incentives that you, that, you, that you mentioned, that you've highlighted, or potentially you can imagine um, you know, external influences from policy uh, even uh, affecting the, uh, the, the likelihood that a that, that, uh, patient gets coded as sepsis. And we're, we're really trying to work towards that, something that's, uh, we know it can't be perfect, but something that um, is at least objective and reliable. You know, and I completely supportive of that, and and that's that's that is the rub. I mean, so for example, uh, capillary assessment of volume responsiveness is not something easily amenable to this approach. But at least identifying patients. I know you didn't include lactate in your model. It's easy to know whether or not you got a lactate. It's easy. I mean, and on paper anyway, to scavenge timing of antibiotics, or it's easy ostensibly uh, for your center, maybe not mine, to determine uh, when and where the uh, blood cultures were drawn. So there's so much potential in this, and it, I just wish we could convince the uh, vendors, if you would, to uh, sort of get on board with, with these things rather than, you know, they keep selling the box and they, and they don't really care about this kind of stuff, I, at least as far as I can tell. And I'm speaking of Epic here. I didn't want to mention any brand names. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say about the, about the HR thing, I think. I think that's a really good point, which is that, um, you know, there are, you know, we live in a country in a healthcare system with many different EHRs, and I think we need to be cognizant of that as we think about um, surveillance measures or definitions that uh, can be applied across um, potentially many different EHRs. And, and at least for this study and some of the other work that, that we're trying to do is, is again, we're not, we're not, you know, we're limited. We can't create a very, you know, comp- complicated um, surveillance definition, right? We, we were trying to focus on things that are, as I said in the beginning, that are um, a kind of really central um, markers of, of at least suspected or treated sepsis and septic shock, and things that ideally could um, most EHRs could, could support these things, antibiotics, blood cultures, pressors, as, as an example. And I think the more complicated you get um, with the definition, then the more uh, problems you get in terms of variability in uh, what EHRs can um, support and the type of data that, that, they, that they can um, contain. I'm curious as to your thoughts on the differences in the mortality decline um, using your clinically-based definition versus the coding-based definition. Um, you know, the, uh, on one level, it's depressing. It doesn't look like we're doing a very as good of a job if we look at the clinical data compared to how it's being coded. But you do allude, right. to, you do allude to one explanation for that in your discussion. Yeah, well, I, I think I think I think this is a really important point, which is when we're we're interested in uh, not only, of course, trends and incidents, but I think kind of hand in hand of that is, of course, with outcomes and mortality being the most obvious outcome to to look at. And um, obviously, as we found, um, kind of a more modest in, uh, increase in incidents when using these using the clinical criteria compared to ICD-9 codes. We also found a much more modest decline um, in 
in mortality. And um, I think the simplest explanation of that, um, I think definitely a large part of it probably is, is this phenomenon that that uh, more and more patients are being uh, diagnosed with sepsis or septic shock. And it's not necessarily that those patients are being incorrectly diagnosed or incorrectly labeled, but as you uh, perhaps in the past, uh, only the most obvious, you know, the sickest of the sickest patients are being labeled as septic or having septic shock. You know, the patients who maybe positive blood cultures or on, you know, multi-organ failure, pressures, and, and, and right. 10 years ago, that was really obvious. And now as we become more and more aware of sepsis on everybody's mind, um, you know, I, I think we're, again, we're, we're better at recognizing it, but I think the natural corollary, corollary to that is that probably some of these patients are, are just less acutely ill. So as you expand your pool of who you're labeling septic, then um, your, your, your mortality can, you know, I always use the example as, if, if you know, if, if I go around and label everybody uh, on my hospital unit as having sepsis, then uh, your sepsis mortality is going to decrease dramatically, even if you haven't done, <laughs> done a single thing with regards to sepsis care. And um, I think I think uh, I don't think necessarily that's the entire explanation, but I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, if you can just get, you can draw sort of a mental image and say, well, maybe some of those one-day pressure people who legitimately did do have septic shock. Uh, you know, and so this, the specificity was still there. Hey, they right. got better, and yet they weren't included in, in the uh, other data set, the clinical data set, and so the mortality is lower in that group because guess what? They got better in a hurry. They didn't require that uh, pressure legitimately for two days. I mean, so there are some pa- flavors of patients mm-hmm. like that you can imagine were in the, in the group. And, again, as yeah. you say, recognition. I mean, the, the secular trends for mortality have been genuine through the years. I mean, I think that surviving sepsis, uh, for example, Done a lot. I, I, you know, I tell my residents, you, you you use the word source control. Fifteen years ago, you never heard that phrase, and I know they're just they're just two words, right? It's just a concept, but it just shows you that we're thinking, you know, and, and it has changed our practice. Oh, there's there's no doubt about it. I, I mean, I am definitely uh, a fan of the surviving sepsis campaign and what they've done and are trying to do. Uh, I think uh, you know all the stuff about raising awareness and early recognition, source control, early, early treatment. Those are definitely good things, and I, and I agree with you. I, I think there's no doubt that it's uh, contributed to better care. And um, there are plenty of studies that are not only claims-based, but some non-claims-based studies as well. That that's pretty good evidence. I agree with you that mortality is 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 declining. Um, but I think. Uh, again, the question, I think the magnitude of the trends is, is, is important as well. And I think um, our study tries to highlight that, that, that we need to be really careful when, when, when relying uh, simply on um, diagnoses or, or, or billing codes. And, yeah, and some of the care, other, it's, it's sorry, both care and coding, right? Some, is, some of the improvements are care, some of the improvements yes. are coding. Yes, absolutely. And I think the other, the other interesting thing we did, we did find, I want to just comment quickly, is this, this, this trend towards more and more patients getting discharged to hospice. Uh, that was, I thought that was an um, uh, interesting finding in our study that um, I think this is um, kind of appears to be a little bit of a societal trend, maybe uh, more and more patients um, who, who, who are um, you know, on the verge of death uh, instead of dying in the hospital, perhaps being discharged to hospice, and we did, we did see um, a rising proportion of that. And interesting, when you when you included mortality or hospice as a as a combined outcome, uh, that decline was even more was even more attenuated by by any method that you measure septic shock. Sure, interesting. What about the role of lactate 
uh, you know, uh, Bob brought it up earlier, and, and and you talk about it, you know, that the the lactate, you know, as as a lab uh, in, in the data set that you had, you know, the frequency which is being drawn, its utilization in in, in diagnostics and management, you know, uh, has been a somewhat up, has definitely been upward trending clinically. So, did you just feel it was going to be too noisy at this stage in regards to your data set? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think you, you just said it there. Um, some of uh, we published a, a, another paper in um, clinical medicine uh, maybe a year or two ago, um, at least just at our own institutions, looking at this the trends in lactate uh, testing, and we saw you know every year in the past ten years that really whatever denominator we use, that the rate of lactate testing really increased. And I think I think we could probably all speak anecdotally to that. Um, right. That you know lactate nowadays, I think you talk to the, any of the residents now. I mean, they're on it. Uh, they're they're checking lactates. Maybe arguably too too much, frankly. I mean, patients that it's part of, only, part of the fine, seven, right? Part right, of the exactly. Uh, maybe maybe we've gone too much. But I, in general, I think uh, you know I think most of us will probably say it's, it's a good thing that you know, lactate is obviously important for, for you know a good marker of um, potential bad outcomes and whatnot. And so, but yeah. So given that we knew that um, lactate testing has. Uh, has has changed so much in frequency. We we're, we're aware of that, that that could potentially bias uh, bias um, any type of trends we try to we try to impute from from um, from using clinical data. It, to, to be more explicit about that, in the sense that um, again, if if that's part of your criteria and you're and you're checking it more and more, then of course your 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 parent incidence is going is going to go up. And, um, and and that's that's actually what we saw in our hospitals. We we, we did another study where I think you alluded to early on, where we um, looked at a uh, surveillance definition, looking at infection in all different types of organ dysfunction, and 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 the difference in incidence and mortality when including lactate or not including lactate wasn't huge, but it was it was it was definitely um, definitely definitely there. And it's something again, checking lactase clinically is good. It makes a lot of sense. Um, Good patient care in general for sepsis, uh, but when trying to track trends over time, uh, we just have to be aware of that potential confounding from from the from the changing in testing rates. And I think also, you know, we haven't really explored this, but I think even potentially, I could, you can easily imagine that maybe the the rates of testing lactate testing might differ across hospitals. That uh, one hospital with a QI initiative on sepsis and emphasizing lactates and the order sets and whatnot. You can imagine that that they're going to pick up a lot more patients with elevated lactate, and so I think when thinking about whether lactate should be part of a surveillance definition to try to see if there is variability in sepsis rates, that could be a potential um, issue as well. That's a good point. I mean, I, what I was struck by, and then when we were you know discussing you know, using this article for the podcast. Is obviously, you know, historically a lot of large trend data, you know, and, and Bob said it earlier, big data. But it all came from, you know, it's all been essentially, you know, billing based and um, encoding based, and you know, and and it's like every discussion around that starts with, well, we all know the limits to billing and coding data. Like it's just this assumption, like here's, like we're all going to be willing to accept this, and and I'm struck by obviously that it's fine. There's clearly limitations as as we've talked about um, uh, to your, uh, you know, clinical indices here. Um, but it does have that inherent sense 
of feeling a lot more valid simply because you're going to the source, right? That you're literally using act, you know, patient data. We can, you know, we can quibble over you know, two days, one day, three days, how many days of antibiotics, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, but you know, it's, it strikes me that, that the, the one value that, that I'm, I'm seeing, and, 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 and I think Bob said earlier, let's redefine big data and think of it now as big data in regards to these EMRs and these electronic health records, um, having a direct access to our data, you know, minute-to-minute data on our patients, right? And we have the, clearly have the computing power for it. So, Well, you know, years ago I, I participated in a ACCP Quality Improvement Committee, and, and we were reviewing National Quality Forum uh, uh, measure, perform, perspective performance measures, and they, and they all uh, sort of assumed uh, sort of an EMR feasibility that was not in existence for anybody, right? right? That you could just create some program in a macro and you're going to spit out the kind of data that are, is in this paper. And as we just heard, <laughs> it's a lot of work, even, yeah. even when you can do that. And most of us can't do anything remotely like that. Like I can't sit at my laptop and, and create, uh, you know, any kind of compliance with any kind of performance measure at this point. I mean, clearly the potential exists. But we're a long way off. That's why the work of these investigators is so important, I think, to really start uh, moving this direction. It's ultimately things have to go this way, but it's still just a long, long way to go. It strikes me that since a lot of this is being, uh, I guess I'll use the word mandated from a perspective of CMS and others, that some of this mandated drive for quality that's going to require data should also be directed towards the manufacturers of these electronic health records to make their uh, EHR not just its ability to spit out data onto a screen for the for the doctor to look at, but that it actually needs to have the appropriate things, quote, under the hood, uh, if you will, to make it easier to be doing this kind of uh, ongoing going active research, right? I mean, it seems that's, an, that's something that's worthy of being of, uh, in demand uh, to these software companies. Well, you know, I've heard it said about one of our major EMR manufacturers who will go unnamed. You know, there are 1,000 <laughs> programmers and 3,000 lawyers. And, and having, <laughs> having attempted at one point myself to create uh, some software that was rapidly absorbed into the, into the uh, 900-pound gorilla, uh, you know, it's, it's not so easily done. Right. Yeah, I'll just say another word on that, which is I agree. It's, it's, I'm glad you guys uh, agree that um, billing codes, you know, we should probably begin to move away from those. Not that they don't have any role, obviously, but I think as, as something, as a sole method of surveillance, um, you know, I think, I think probably, probably sounds like we would agree that it's, it's not um, sufficient by itself. But in terms of the EHR, um, you know, this, this kind of EHR-based um, methodology, I mean, I, I hear you. I think, I think we're, we're definitely far off from having it easily and routinely available. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's oh, no yeah. doubt about that. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I, I, think, I think our study, in a sense, um, it, it was definitely a lot of work. But I think, um, you know, this UHE now, uh, Vizient Consortium, I think this – these these large um, uh, either consortiums like like um, UHC or um, uh, you know these these EHR vendors like Cerner uh, that are that are kind of um, you know are linked with many many hospitals with with EHR systems and is you know I think you know linking linking you know large data sets I think that's becoming increasingly common and so I, I think the possibility is is. Is, is there? I guess maybe I'm more optimistic, <laughs> but I think I think I think we are in a period where there's a lot of different EHRs, a lot of different big data sets, um, and yes, you know, much more work needs to be done to 
uh, make it easier um, to process, uh, easier to um, to study. Um, uh, but I think I think we're, I think I like to think we're getting there. Excellent. So, guys, we've been talking for a little bit. What haven't we talked about, or what what kind of final thoughts, or you know, something we we been meaning to say? If only someone would have asked. <laughs> uh, any any kind of any kind of final thoughts? <laughs> I thought that was actually a pretty good one. Right there. <laughs> Me too. I agree. So just we'll cut and paste. That's we'll take the audio yeah. and slice it in there. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Fantastic. Well, as expected, this was a great discussion, guys. I really appreciate it from both of you so much. This was fantastic. Oh, thanks. Okay. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Bye bye. All right. All right take sure. care. Have a, all right. Bye. Have a good day. Bye bye.